Well, good evening. It is good to see you. Um, my name is Aubrey, and if we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation. So our structure for tonight, I'm going to teach for about 50 minutes. That's a very long time, right, Shay? And uh, my daughter just went. <laughs> and then Mike Deaton is somewhere. There's Mike. Then Mike is going to come up, and he's got a really cool color-coded index card system that he's going to use on us, like he used with students when he was a professor at JMU, to give us opportunities to ask questions. And he's going to then, with some people, collect the cards and look for some themes and lead a Q&A. And he'll explain more about that in, in a bit. And in between, we'll have some restroom break, and then we'll have a Q&A, and we'll be done around 6. So, if at any time you need the facilities, Jade, will you point out that door, right where Jade is pointing? If you go that direction, you'll find them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. You let us partake of the gospel. We couldn't earn it. We, we can't achieve it. But you gave it, and you gave it as a free gift. Before we were ever born, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to deliver us from the powers, to forgive our sins. And so, as always, we need your grace. Help us to be the first, Father, to have willing hearts to extend your grace to other people, wherever they are, however they are. Father, help me to be full of love, to be free from condescension, to illumine rather than to condemn. Help me to give thoughtful understanding. Help me to model, Father, compassion and judgment. Help us all to see that you, the God revealed to us in scriptures, in the breaking of bread, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, that you are a God of love, of judgment, and mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so I want to start with the story of Elizabeth Smart. Some of you might remember 20 years ago in the early hours of June the 5th, 2002, a man by the name of Brian David Mitchell broke into the home of Edward and Lois Smart in Salt Lake City. He snuck into their daughter's bedroom where their two daughters were sleeping in a bed together, their 14-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, and their nine-year-old daughter, Mary. This man with a knife held to Elizabeth's throat, woke up the two daughters and told Elizabeth to come with him. And he kidnapped her at knife point. And over the following nine months, in a sick and twisted parody of marriage, the kidnapper 
repeatedly raped Elizabeth, calling her his second wife. It's a terrible and tragic story. Elizabeth has been speaking over the course of the summer and the 20-year anniversary of all of this happening. She survived. She went on to college and then grad school. She got married. She's had three children. She's written two books. She developed a foundation that focuses on child abduction and recovery programs. And then a couple of years ago on a flight from, I think, England, she fell asleep on a flight and a man sexually assaulted her. And she's now started a foundation on that. She is a remarkable survivor. One of my favorite theologians who writes about sex and sexuality and gender is a woman by the name of Beth Felker Jones. I'll tell you more about her later. She's written one of the very best books on sex, and the great news about it is very little, so it doesn't even big print. The name of the book is Faithful, A Theology of Sex. I, I highly recommend it. In that book, she tells the story of Elizabeth Smart, and she points out that when Smart wrote her memoir a few years after the event, that Smart, in both her memoir and in her public speaking, acknowledged that she was raised a devout Mormon and that she had absorbed a set of teachings about sexuality and sexual abstinence and purity that when I read those teachings, it's very similar to what many Christians teach, what many of us are taught at home and in church. And, and in her memoir, Smart makes this very painful observation. She draws a connection between the way she was taught about sex and her reaction to being raped. Now, she's very clear that she knew her family loved her, but she's also clear that she connected her virginity to her worth as a human being. And so there is this heart-wrenching section in her memoir where she writes that despite knowing that her family loved her, she can remember that during her ordeal, this is her words, a terrible idea seeped into my soul. If my family knew what the man had done to me, would they still want me? The question cut me to the core. Imagine you have a beautiful vase, then imagine that you accidentally knock it off a table and it shatters into pieces on the floor. We all understand it's not the vase's fault. It was pushed off the table and shattered, but still it's broken. It's worthless. And that is how I felt. It wasn't my fault, but I was broken. And no one would want me anymore. So even though I knew the bearded man could kill me at any time, I had already reached the point. I no longer cared. So on top of the horrendous tragedy of being abducted and the violence committed against her, Smart has been public about how the feeling that she had been ruined made her incapable of leaving. 
It made her resist escaping. These feelings of being broken, they line up with a way of thinking about sex and what's right and what's wrong. And unfortunately, that way of thinking too often has been held up in the church as the Christian way of thinking about sex. But that way of thinking about it is wrong. It's not just wrong, it's a heresy. In the powerful words of Beth Felker Jones, people are not crystal vases. Women and girls are not crystal vases. People are not commodities. Women and girls are not commodities. Human beings and human bodies should never, never be bought or sold. Our value, our worth, our purpose in the world can never be attached to some supposed purity of body as if we were merchandise that you can value based on if there's dings or cracks. We are sons and daughters of the king. Now, this is where we need to start the entire series on God, sex, gender, and human flourishing. Because sometimes culture and the church have spoken about sex and purity in a way that makes virginity into a thing that a person should cling to in order to retain value. It tells the graceless lie that we are more valuable people if we have this thing called virginity. It tells the demonic lie that our market value is what makes us precious. And of course, there is much that is healthy and holy and happy about the situation in which both spouses can come to a marriage without prior sexual experience, but that has nothing to do with the value of the people coming to the marriage. So let's start this whole series hearing together this fundamental important truth. All men and women, teenagers and children, virgins and non-virgins, queer and trans, heterosexuals, and sexual minorities, and gender minorities, celibate, and sexually active, sexually pure, and sexually immoral, all human beings are precious. And your preciousness is unconditional. There is nothing that can happen to us, and there is nothing that we can do to ourselves or we can do to others that takes away our status as free, beautiful, image-bearing children of the creator who is a beneficent king. Your value, your worth, your purpose in this world can never be attached to the purity of your body. And with that on the table, that's where we have to start. That is the fundamental starting point for these very complex waters that we have to go into. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of tonight trying to convince you that tonight is worth your time (laughs) and to come back next week and to bring somebody. I want to talk about six six reasons for a better story. Number one, we are talking about sex and gender because it matters. These things really matter. 
sex, sexuality, and gender, this is something that touches the very core of our existence, of the many lessons that the Me Too movement has taught us. One of them is certainly sex matters profoundly, and its violation leads to the deepest emotional and psychological damage, quite apart from the physical scars it leaves. Now, this is something that Jesus Christ taught us early on in one of his very best-known teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings up sex, and he brings up sexual ethics. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Here is Jesus in one of his most famous teachings, very early in the teachings, say, talking about sexual ethics. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we typically read this thinking about the dude. But listen to that verse thinking about the woman the man is looking lustfully at. Jesus says that the man looking lustfully at a woman has broken the commandment against adultery as surely as if he had physically slept with her. Now, Jesus is giving an enormous amount of dignity to the woman. This woman is not to be looked at lustfully because, in the words of another one of my favorite authors on the subject, a guy named Sam Alberry. Her sexuality is so precious, it is so valuable, she has sexual integrity that is so important, it must be honored by everyone, even the guy walking by on the street. He's saying that this sexual integrity is so precious, it shouldn't even be violated in your imagination. Even in the privacy of someone's own mind, this woman, even if she were to never find out about it, she has still been greatly wronged by being thought about lustfully. Notice how much value Jesus gives this woman and her body. Notice that Jesus is showing us that our bodies, our sexuality is more precious than we've ever even realized. And so Jesus is teaching a way to honor and dignify this part of us that is so valuable. Now, these are not the words of a prude. These are the words of someone who understands what it means to have a body that's violated. These are the words of someone who understands what it means to have a body. That it, it, it means there is something to us that is intimate and personal. The Christian sexual ethic is not legalism. It is not some hyper-focus on arbitrary moral rules. Sexual ethics are at the center of the gospel. They are essential to the gospel. They are part of the way that God changes our lives, helping us to become more and more fully human, more and more like Jesus, more and more faithful to bearing God's image in the world. In the Bible, we're taught that sex matters because faithful sex testifies to the power and the character of the God who graciously saves. Sex and your soul are connected. 
And it's the burden of this whole series to help us understand that, to see that, to believe that, and to grow in our ability to explain that. So the first reason we need to spend this afternoon and eight more of these talking about sex and gender and sexuality is because it really does matter. The second reason for this series is that our church and the other churches represented here need to become places where the LGBTQ community is safe and where they feel safe. Now, I need to press pause here for a minute and say something about language. If you've noticed when it comes to sexuality and gender, language is really complex and labels are very complex. The more time I spend with the LGBTQ community, the more I've grown convinced that they know what they're saying. And we're arrogant to tell people who are having experiences different than us that we know better how to describe their experience. That normally doesn't work. Janelle and I are having an argument, and I say, you really mean you feel like this, right? <laughs> you know? The more time I've spent with the LGBTQ community, I'm convinced they are very thoughtful and intentional about how they choose to describe their experience of their sexuality. And none of the labels are neutral. Every single label, gay, same-sex attracted, queer, lesbian, bi, homosexual, trans, every one of these labels has history and baggage. And if you don't know that history and you don't know that baggage, then you're going to make a huge mistake. Do you know that SSA, same-sex attraction, which a lot of Christians prefer, do you know that came out of the reparative therapy movement? And when you try to push back on somebody who's labeling themselves as gay and saying, well, don't, don't make gay your identity, which is not. When you do that and you turn them to a word that many of them have been traumatized by because it was forced on them through a deceit, and if you don't even know that, I, some Christians I've been talking with have perfectly good and valid reasons why they choose to describe themselves as same-sex attracted. But I also have other friends who are Christians, and they use the label lesbian or gay or queer, and they often add celibate to it. They, when they say they are a gay Christian or a celibate queer Christian, what you should do is, if you ever gain the relational trust, is ask them what they mean by it. Because there's a good chance what you think they mean by it is not what they mean by it. When I've asked them about what they mean by that term and why they use it, it's almost always this incredibly compelling reason in history. I have other friends who experience attraction to people of their same gender, and they have very good reasons for rejecting all labels. And they've got personal history and personal reasons for that. So here's the deal. After reading so many arguments in the label wars that are in the Christian church especially, and going back and forth on this issue, I'm convinced of four things when it comes to identity and labels. Number one, when someone is trying to identify their experience, their terms are personal. 
Number two, all of the terms have legitimate arguments. Number three, all of the terms have baggage that heterosexuals and heterosexual Christians especially don't know much about. And number four, terminology is an area where we should give freedom. Now, if you've followed our province or our diocese, you might know what I've just said is different. Then it's a different understanding of how to deal with the issue of sexuality and identity that has been recommended by the ACNA College of Bishops statement on sexuality and gender and identity. And it's different from the understanding initially presented by our own bishop's pastoral letter to the clergy of his diocese. I've met several times with our bishop on this. I'm reading a script, by the way, at this point. And he asked me to let you know a few things. Number one, he's convinced that I am fully orthodox on these issues. Number two, he's, he understands that I've come to this by wrestling with how to effectively lead our church in our community to live out the gospel. Number four, He's willing to wade into this with me, and we've committed to further conversations. And, or that was number three. And number four, he's given me permission and freedom to carry on the way I'm talking. So <laughs> that's really important because I'm saying something that, that in, in the Anglican world is different than what's going on. So at some point this week, we're probably going to give you... Um, the manuscript to my, my teaching tonight. And in the manuscript at this point will be a link to the letter from the bishops of the Anglican Church in North America and our own bishop. And you can read how they're saying we should talk about these things and mark the places where you, you see that this is different. All right. So here's where I am. I really want to encourage you to resist the terminology wars. It's a whole lot of theory overstepping its bounds. Too many well-intentioned Christians have pushed back against people for using sexual identity language, and I can guarantee that many of the recipients of that pushback have experienced those conversations as emotional abuse. When I've asked people what they mean by the labels they've chosen, and then I've looked at what is being said by those who are pushing back against the labels, I'm convinced there is way too much talking past each other. Now, let me go back to the second reason for this series, which is that our church and our homes need to become places where LGBTQ people are safe and feel safe. Our church believes that the Bible teaches us to honor God and generously love people. So to be clear, our church will continue to embrace the Christian church's historic teaching on marriage in the household. We are a congregation whose identity is rooted in the Trinity and the historic teachings and practices of the Christian faith. The overwhelming scriptural and historical teaching of the Christian church is this. God intends sexual intimacy to be enjoyed exclusively within a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, and any inward cultivation or outward expression of sexual desire apart from that is out of God's will. And so outside of marriage between a man and a woman, all of us, whatever our gender or whatever our 
uh, the object of our sexual desire. We are all called by a good and gracious creator to live lives of celibate chastity. That's the clear, unambiguous historic teaching of the church. And so what I'm saying is that our church and our homes need to become places where sexual minorities and gender minorities feel safe while we continue to hold the historic Christian doctrine on these things. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It's going to be difficult for a number of reasons. I'm not going to name the obvious reason because you already know that one. But here's a bunch of other reasons, two other. The part of the church in North America that still believes that, that sex is only appropriate in marriage between a man and a woman. The church in America that holds that position has mistreated sexual and gender minorities through three primary ways, direct acts of injustice, ignorance, and silence. We must acknowledge and come to terms with that history because that history defines our place in the LGBTQ community. It gives shape to our place in their lives. Second, a second reason this is going to be hard to do, but we've got to do it, is churches that hold to the biblical sexual ethic, including our church, by and large, we have not yet developed the skills, the wisdom, the practices we need in order to love well lesbian and gay and bisexual and queer and trans people in the particular kind of ways that they need to be loved. It doesn't matter if you're loving me in a way that I don't notice. Haven't we learned anything about love languages? Seems like the whole world's learned about this. And because of that, because we haven't learned the skills We've put barriers in place that affect sexual minorities. We've got to acknowledge this and find ways to center the experience of non-heterosexual people and the things important to them. A woman I've been talking with recently, she is a very committed Christian. She absolutely is committed to the church's historic teaching on sexuality. She grew up in a good, good Christian home. Her parents were, were not just traditional Christians. They had lots of gay friends, lots of same-sex attracted friends. And this woman who I'm getting to know, beginning to spend time with and have conversations with, from an early age, growing up in this good Christian home, from an early age, she was same-sex attracted. And her thought growing up in a good home that believed the gospel and her parents had lots of gay friends, her thought growing up, and this is a direct quote. She told me this on the phone two weeks ago. My thought was, if you experience same-sex attraction, God has already turned you over. You're a turned over one. A nine-year-old girl thinking this. God has turned you over. You are beyond hope. He has turned you over to the destruction of your flesh, and he wants to have nothing to do with you. This is not a girl raised in a fundamentalist home. This is not even a girl raised in a home that whose parents didn't have gay friends. Another Christian woman, the, one of the most articulate Christian women on this issue I know of is Eve Tushnet. She lives in D.C. 
She is steadfastly and solely attracted to women. She's a devout Christian. She's committed to following the Christian sexual ethic. She's celibate. And in her most recent book, I can't recommend it highly enough, Eve Tushnet, the name of the book is Tenderness. She writes these tragic words. It is typically easier for a gay person who grows up outside the church to know God's love for them than a gay person who has a Christian upbringing. The children of the church who should be the most confident in God's love, the ones who should know best what God is like, are instead the ones who grow up uncertain of God's love and afraid there's no place for them in the church. Over and over, I hear this. Two or three times a week for months now, and for so long now, I've been developing relationships with the LGBTQ community inside and outside the church, and that comes up over and over and over, and it's not coming up from people raised in fundamentalist churches. Why? Why is this? Why is it that people who grow up in the church while experiencing same-sex attraction or discomfort with their gender, and especially those who always tried to do right and be good Christian kids, why is it that we are getting story after story after story where they wake up in their 20s and 30s, and this is just so common, they realize they never really believe God cherished them? Why is that? What have we missed Quote, this is what Tushnet writes, they have always felt at some level that God was disgusted by them and did not delight in them. Not the way he delighted in people with more conventional sexual temptations. The same sex attracted person raised in the church, not all the time, but too often ends up saying that they knew intellectually They accepted it on faith that God loved them, but the picture in their mind was God's love was a dutiful love colored by that familial, familiar parental admixture of expectation and disappointment. Gay people who grow up in good Christians' homes and good Christian churches, not all of them, definitely not all of them, but too many of them report this experience. And it doesn't have to be that way. We can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We can find Christian wisdom. We can follow in the footsteps of Jesus who in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught publicly an extremely rigorous ethical standard on all kinds of hot button topics. And in the very next chapter, the very people who he had just publicly condemned their lifestyles, their choices, they want to eat with him. They want to sit with him and you find them in meals with him and you get the feeling that he's listening to them and they're listening to him and that they feel safety. It is possible for the LGBTQ community to be safer in the church than in secular society. We know it's possible because we follow Jesus. Where do you think the people that failed his standards felt safest? Next to him? Or next to 
people who weren't anywhere close to his kind of love and his capacities, the path to become a safe church and safe homes for sexual minorities, the path forward is absolutely not to revise what the Bible says, what the church has historically taught. The path forward is not a new sexual ethic. In other words, I'm saying that the more progressive churches are letting themselves off the hook when they develop a new sexual ethic out of their compassion for the LGBTQ community, when they have a departure from what the church has always taught. They're letting themselves off the hook of the gospel. But I'm also saying that churches who hold the traditional Christian ethic are letting themselves off the hook when they think that the reason the gay and queer and trans community do not feel safe is because we disagree with their choice. We are letting ourselves off the hook if we hang it all on the weight of the fact that our society says to them and programs them that we hate them because we believe this. We have a greater power in us to overcome that. The reason that it's not happening, the reason that three to 5%, the, that's the current most prevalent view of, of, of the percentage of homosexuals in the American population is somewhere between three to 5%. The reason that three to 5% of our church is not known in our church as gay men and women the reason that we are not safe is because we haven't understood the unique experience of the gay brother and gay sister among us. And we haven't learned how to be really good at loving them. The path forward is for us to learn specific ways to love our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, specific skills for loving this minority community with its particular struggles and graces. Jesus loves gay people, and so we do too. We have to figure out the effective ways to express that. So I'm teaching this series because I long for our church and our homes to be a haven for sexual minorities and gender minorities, a place where the LGBTQ human beings are visible and thriving and experiencing true belonging and genuine intimacy. I long for us to be a church where heterosexual Christians are living out the truth of Galatians 6 verse 2, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What I mean is I long for us to make sacrifices to help bear the burdens, the unique burdens of the gay and trans community. I long for the day when leaders in our church, when clergy, when parish council members and small group leaders and single college students and stay-at-home moms can all talk about their same-sex attraction and not be viewed with suspicion or even anxiety. We need Christians who are same-sex attracted to come out publicly while committing themselves to pursue the biblical sexual ethics so that our children can have role models. Over the course of this series, I will point to resources in scripture and Christian practice that can help our church and our homes both hold the biblical view and at the same time become safe places that offer the biblical gift of love and safety. Let us be a place where sexual and gender minorities grow in, a tr grow in their trust of a God who loves us all and shepherds all of us with tenderness and mercy. I long for the day when a young person grows up in our church 
and this gender dysphoric or a same-sex attracted doesn't feel like they fit in their body. I long for the day when that young person says with no idea that she's saying anything unusual. Yeah, I was raised a Christian, so of course I've never doubted God loved me. I'm convinced that we're not there yet. And that's the reason I'm doing this series. A third reason. They get shorter after this. (laughs) A third reason. We need to have this series because these are very complicated issues. Many of us feel overwhelmed by the issue and its implications for our lives and our family and our friendships and our country and our church. And you're not wrong to feel overwhelmed. You're not wrong to be confused. This is as complicated an issue as most of us will face in our lifetime. I can't tell you how many times I have been overcome by a rush of fear that I've gotten it wrong and that I'm dealing out death. I cannot read the Bible on these issues when it's talking about sex or sexuality or gender. I can't read it from a distance anymore. I see my friends, people I love, real people, beautiful faces with complex stories. When I hear these these topics, and I know that some of you, you you're talking to me, you're not persuaded by the logic of the church's sexual ethic, and it's something that you take on trust rather than because you get it. For many people, again, the brilliant Eve Tushnet writes, For many people, the church is beauty and rescue, not a bunch of rules for good behavior, but we accept the church's own account of herself in which morality is not separable from beauty and rescue. As Christians, we trust the church as both mother and teacher, a mother who will nourish us with Jesus's body and blood, And a teacher who shows us Jesus, who is the way, a way of life, even when we don't understand it. And some of you, this might not change anything about that for you. You might get to the end of all this and still not be able to be convinced by the logic of the church's teaching. And I hope, though, if that is you, you can get to a place to trust The church is teaching. The church is our mother. And she's our teacher. I do believe there is value in opening the scriptures again and again and reading them for insight and instruction. It is helpful for us to return to the Bible to interpret it afresh. And so we're here because on this subject, no one is really helped by quick and easy tweetable answers. We want to know what the Bible says. And so we need a lot of time. We need to do the hard work to think deeply. All right, so we need this series because sex is important, number one, because we need to become a safe place for sexual minorities, number two, and number three, because it's so complicated. Now, number four, we need to have this series because the vision that God gives us for sex and gender and relationships is difficult. It is as tough and demanding today as it ever has been. And so we need each other. 
God calls all of his people to a life of holiness. And it is the responsibility of every Christian to turn away from illicit sexual desires and to steward their sexuality in obedience to Christ. All of us are complicated sexually. Each one of us has complicated sexual desires. And the constraint of those desires is an act of agonizing self-denial for many of us. Many Christians struggle to be faithful. For some, it's a seasonal struggle. For others, it's, it's a daily struggle. For some, the struggle is significantly more difficult than for others. Some people have to give up more than others to follow God in this area. As one very clever writer put it, the Christian life is not democratic. Some, some only have one cross to bear. Others have 10. Too often the church has not only failed to help people with their struggle. To its shame, we've also made it more difficult for people. So we need to do this series because we need to help one another. The married and the unmarried, the heterosexually attracted and the same sex attracted. Those who are comfortable in those, their bodies and those who are not. We need to help each other live into the Christian vision of sexual wholeness and holiness and flourishing. Because any life that any of us create outside of God's design only brings death. And so we're doing this series because we're committed to helping one another with grace and patience and hope. Each one of us with all of our complicated sexual experiences and desires, all of us need to be welcomed and nurtured along the way. The fifth reason we're doing this series is because Christians and the Christian vision of life no longer sit at the center of our society. And so we need the church to help equip us to become what we are, a minority group, a minority missionary society in the secular age. We live in a secular age. And the developments in our society with regard to marriage and sex and gender and education are just the latest and wholly predictable evidence of the fact that this is not a Christian culture. We need to be deeply realistic about the nature of our society. There's a sociologist named Peter Berger. He coined the term cognitive minorities. He uses this term to describe those whose views about the world are significantly different from the mainstream of their surrounding culture. Christians are now a cognitive minority in America. And Berger contends that the key to survive when you're a minority is to act like you're a minority. And if we keep trying to act like we're the majority, we're going to dig our own grave. The key for minority survival is recognizing you're a minority, acting like one. But the problem for us is that Christians have occupied the cultural mainstream in America for so long that many Christians find the idea of getting set to the minority place, of, of being a minority, they find it difficult to stomach, never mind the thought of acting like they're a minority. That insults them. 
We need to mind our place. Many, see, Christians are not only, not only are we cognitive minorities, Christians are now viewed as an immoral minority on these issues. As, in other words, as well as having different beliefs from everyone else, we are now frequently cast as having inferior morals. And this puts us in a social and psychological space that is fraught with danger. Christian beliefs are frequently viewed as morally dangerous and antithetical to human well-being. The idea that our beliefs cause harm. If a teenager in our school articulates a Christian ethic with regard to same-sex attraction, they will be viewed not just as different, but as mean, as hateful, as harmful. Greg Thompson was a pastor in Charlottesville. He wrote a letter to his church a few years ago. Quote, we are not representatives of a majority whose task it is to reclaim a Christian America. We are representatives of a minority whose task it is to re-evangelize a secular West. So look, we're doing this series in order to equip our church intellectually, morally, spiritually, relationally, strategically to act like missionaries who are minority missionaries, to act and live as missionary people because that's who we are. We're casting the Christian vision for sexuality so that we can all learn how to better communicate this beautiful picture in our own spheres of influence. And obviously, we don't want to do this in a way that's overly muscular or ham-fisted or insensitive because that won't accomplish the outcomes we want. If the Christian vision of sexuality is ever going to capture hearts and minds, we have to learn to cast it with joy and tears and hope. I hope that this series will bring encouragement to you as you seek to communicate this glorious vision to your friends and your family and your neighbors and your colleagues and your children. Finally, the sixth reason for this series is that the church in America has lost so much credibility on these issues. And when you combine our loss of credibility with all these other dynamics, many of us are losing our confidence in the church's teaching. We need to take some criticism squarely on the chin. The history of the church in the sphere of human sexuality is disfigured by shame and hypocrisy. Now look, the church doesn't always act poorly, but serious mistakes are are a part of our history. And it's critical that we learn them and own up to them. Too often the church has allowed a deficient sub-Christian view of sex to dominate our churches and shape our attitudes. And as a result, the church has been harsh and judgmental and many people have been diminished and excluded. And rather than serving the vulnerable and the poor, the American evangelical church has at times used our moral convictions as weapons to beat people over the head. Too many of us have fallen into a culture war posture. We need to come clean about the negatives in our history. And then there is the heart-wrenching 
sexual abuse crisis. The largest Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptist Convention. It is, and before that, Mennonites, before that, Catholics. When it comes to gender and sexuality, we've got to acknowledge that the Western Evangelical Church has perpetrated awful persecution and mistreatment of the LGBTQ community. We've enforced restrictive and discriminatory gender roles. We've nurtured marriage-centric, family-centric communities that marginalize single people. And so the sixth reason we need this series is because as an institution, the Christian church has lost enormous credibility when it comes to sexual ethics. And we need to come to grips with this as we rediscover a confidence in the traditional Christian teaching on sex and marriage. It's good news. It really is. And as we see, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the Christian vision of sex is a story charged with hope. It's charged with optimism and grace for everybody, for gender minorities, for sexual minorities, for heterosexuals. A story the Bible tells about sex, it's, it has inspiration, it has passion. It's a story told in words, but also it's put on display in lives, real lives, in real homes, in real families, in real communities. All right, so there they are, the six reasons I think we need this series. And it's very challenging. But again, in that letter Greg Johnson wrote, he said this, this cultural moment brings with it a wonderful grace. And that grace is this. For many of us, the experience of being stripped of the false consolations of our majority status, consolations of ease and power and acceptance and affirmation, this holds the potential of opening us up to the possibility of the only true consolation there is, delighted union with the Holy Trinity through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of every good. Jesus is the presence in every joy. He is the keeper in every trial, and he is our refuge in every moment, now and forever. And because of this, I want to urge you to greet the moment we live in, in America, not with alarm, not even simply with resolve, but let's greet it with joy because Christ is our life. Christ and, and, and our calling together is to live in such a way that Christ who is our life might through us become the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, um, please help us. Help us in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead to learn and to grow, to open our hearts to the salve of your grace. In your name I pray, amen. So as Mike is coming up here, um, here's real quick the, the map for the, the road ahead. Over the next three weeks, I'm gonna deal with this question. What is it about our cultural moment that makes the Christian vision look mean, look bad, look Ill illogical? 
we'll do three weeks on that. Then I'm going to spend four weeks on what is the Christian vision of sexuality and gender and relationships. And then we'll conclude with a session focused on singleness and marriage in the church. All right. Thank you, Mike. So if you're like me, there's much to think about here, and what we want to do in each of these sessions is to give, to give you a chance to give some feedback and ask questions. Mike, can I pick which questions I answer and which I defer to Keith? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Keith, you want to come on up? You just... Can we... Are we he offered... Here? Okay, uh, so I, I told Aubrey some of these will be questions because the yellow cards are questions. Some of them will be just statements or comments folks made that we'd like to get him to give some reaction to. Uh, so here's, here's one that I'll just read to you. I know multiple same-sex couples in faithful relationships who are legally married for years, some with children together. Would you ask them to divorce? That seems wrong. Would you tell them their relationship or marriages are wrong? Can you start in a different order, like with the easier? <laughs> so, um, I think I'm going to talk a lot more about some of the concepts I'm going to use now in when I start talking about um, especially uh, homosexuality. Where I am now in this is that I would encourage these people. First of all, we have to walk alongside people in love. And I, I think I'm not being asked how I would say something in my very first coffee with them. <laughs> so, but just along those lines, people do email me and say things to me like, um, I thought y'all were such a nice church, but now I know you're homophobic because I heard this about you, that about you. And I've just started saying to people, hey, can we have a coffee? And if you'll commit to three or four coffees with me in a row, then I'll tell you what I think about this. But I'd like to know you first. So what I'm getting at is this question, you have to give me the, the kind of right to say a relationship is involved. But where kind of clinically do, do I think we need to land? I think that I, where I've landed on it is something called covenanted partnership. I think that I would say to the gay couple that has children, um, your love is beautiful to God. All love is God's love. And one of the things we've got to get right in our heads is that there is more to being gay than the sexual component of it because there's more to being heterosexual than the sexual component of being heterosexual. And so... This is the first time in church history same-sex friends have not been able to publicly covenant and live out their lives together. That's exactly what monasticism was. Catholics still have orders where people can live in same-sex relationships of depth where they never have to wonder, if I move, will I move alone? I mean, just think about the terror of thinking that for the rest of your life, your roommate can move away from you 
or you can move by yourself. And so coming to grips with that reality has produced within the gay Christian community. When I say gay Christian community, um, I'm talking about people who have same-sex attraction and they love Jesus and they're committed to the Christian sexual ethic. Um, The fact that we can't even hear that, that we always hear gay plus Christian equals I'm acting out, that's like saying a straight Christian is always having sex. So do we need to ask every straight single person in their 40s? Do we need to all, does straight Christian in your 40s mean you're having sex? Look, the sex drive of the LGBTQ community is just like the sex drive of this room. So let's take a quick poll. No, I'm joking. (laughs) So what I'm getting at, long story short, and, and I'll talk a lot more about this if you want me to, but I would encourage them to, to enter into a covenanted partnership and commit to celibacy and to raise that child. By the way, this is what missionaries did with polygamy on the mission field. So. Aubrey, a question about labels. Um, if the church does the very best work possible, isn't it still true that, for example, terms are sometimes used to manipulate, and for that we won't be able to make safe spaces because of the requirements set by others for what those spaces must be like. Mark, can you, I can think of a thousand different ways to go with that. I'm I'm sure that question makes a lot of sense to you. Can you try to reframe it in a way that I can kind of narrow my thoughts down? I I can do my best. Um, I think that the spirit of the question is, you know, the church can present the gospel in a winsome way, an attractive way to all, but, but terms and labels have baggage beyond our discussing them, that other people and, and, and the histories behind them set those meanings. And so how I interpret the question is the church's effort might to some extent fall short because of that wider history that in other words, the church is not the only okay. seat at the table controlling All the right. labels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so because of that, the critical thing is for us to actually prove So the critical move for a church is to have a critical mass of people who are publicly known as LGBTQ people who can say to their friends, I am safe. And that's going to be, I think, the only way we can overcome the accusation. Um, I long for our church to have a gay-straight alliance within our church. A group of gay people who are known as gay, just like we would have lots of other groups in our church, and that it can be a group of people who can teach us as a church all the ways that we're traumatizing them. For example, a recent gay man that I've become friends with who's a very committed Christian, he's a pastor, he said he was in a church, and um, during the coffee and bagel hour, It was quite obvious to the woman he was talking to that he was gay because he had gay affect. 
And she asked him something, and he said, well, I'm a gay Christian. I'm a celibate gay man. And she said to him, why do you think God would make a gay person if the person's not allowed to have sex? And he said to me, what that basically said to me was, why would God make you? The woman didn't intend it. She thought she was engaging in a meaningful conversation. And so there's just a hundred ways that we mess up because we just don't get it. We just don't know. I mean, it's like if you married someone from the deep south and you're from New England and you just keep stepping on yourselves and engaging with each other. And so I think the critical thing is that we need a critical mass of people in our church who are moving toward the Lord, who are open about this. I think the leadership of it has to be committed to the Christian sexual ethic. But I long for our church to be a safe place for even people who aren't. Because, by the way, there's a lot of people in this room that are committed to things that you know, if I knew about them, we would disagree on it. And so I, I think that we've got, to, we've got to push toward this and we've got to create environments. And then that group becomes the plausibility structure. That's really what we need. We need to become a plausibility structure that we're, what we're doing bears witness that it is possible. And this is a Gordian knot to get there. So. I didn't know reading the question was going to be part of this. I don't like this at all. <laughs> there were lots of questions around this rephrased in different ways, but how do we balance loving the LGBT community without validating sin? Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, so everybody that I walk with who, someone they love, who's raised in the church, comes out as practicing, um, entering into a homosexual relationship. This is always the question. Um, a couple of things. I think one neat little mind trick you can play on yourself is the difference between accepting and affirming. I will always accept you because Jesus will always accept you. That doesn't mean I have to affirm this thing. And um, you probably don't ever have to even say it. They know it. I mean, it's... I, I think we're wrong to assume that if we enter into a deep friendship with a person who has a gay partner or is in a gay relationship, that just by being around them, they're, they're starting to think that we agree with it. Um, remember, if we're a minority, they're a much bigger minority. They live with the fact that, that, that they know this, and, and, and it's not getting lost on them. So some people I know have said to their friend or their loved one, all right, you know what I think, and I know what you think. We probably don't ever have to have that conversation again, right? Nope. All right, what's for dinner? Um, that's not as big a deal as we feel in our guts it is because they're not forgetting nearly as fast as they think, as we think they are, as we think they are. So um, 
I want to recommend a resource called Posture Shift. It's a, it's a book. It looks like a big magazine. And it's the best wisdom I've found in the Christian community for how to know and love and relate to each other. It's written by people who've been going through this for decades. And they've been accumulating wisdom. And, um, and they've got all kinds of sections like what to say and not to say in the first conversation. What to say and not to say in the second conversation. Um, really helpful things to say, really unhelpful things to say. Do you go to the wedding or not? Um, and here's what for 20 years the Christian community has experienced in going and not going. And here's how it's played out. So, Callie, did you want to say more? No, no? okay. <laughs> so, Aubrey, I'll ask you one really easy one, and then it's more sub- substantive one. Oh. Are you going to provide a reading list? Maybe for I am. Every week I'm going to offer some resources, and I'm going to do that at the end this week. And um, also, I, this is a huge manuscript with lots and lots of footnotes. We're going to provide it to you online, and it's got, I don't know, like 60 books listed, but I'm going to try to narrow it down every week. Okay. Uh, and this was, this was just a comment that and I, there were some others kind of like this. Uh, it feels really uncomfortable when you get to the, to the label thing and people want to be called... Uh, them or it or you know and and it feels personally very uncomfortable so do you have any yeah, yeah. any input about that I would commend to you pronoun hospitality use the pronoun they request it's not in the moment of that convert look there's a rule for priest that if you're an atheist and I know you're an atheist and you've told me you're an atheist and you come to communion that I got to serve you at the table that I don't pick that spot in front of this whole room to like make a scene, all right? If you are excommunicated from the church and you're under church discipline, the rule is if you force your way to the table, I serve you and afterwards we have a conversation, but we don't do it there. Table hospitality, pronoun hospitality. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. And suck it up, buttercup. We gotta do a lot of uncomfortable things in life. And if you, if you enter into that for a while, you'll get much better at it. Um, it's very uncomfortable to me, and I disagree with um, things. But, but, but English language is, mess, is complicated right now because there are other languages that do give people the pronouns that they can avoid the pain. Unfortunately, the only gender-neutral pronouns we have are plural pronouns, they, them, or it. Now, it, it is interesting. One of, my, one of the, my friends who's gay, who I'm closer to probably than any other friend, this person's not a practicing Christian, is totally on board with all the labels, told me recently, I can't do it. My friend asked me to call them it, and I just couldn't. I told him, I think I'm dehumanizing you. Um, so I, to me, you know, you, you've got, we're a minority missionary community living in this moment. I think there are moments where we get to have these conversations, but in meeting somebody, this is not, or in referring to somebody, um, now, it's not this case, the case with everybody, but just imagine, uh, like, the, the, like I, I know this little girl, she's not a little girl anymore, but from her earliest memory, she felt fractured from herself. And um, I mean profoundly. And it was just utterly debilitating. And, and 
calling her him just was like this pressure relief valve. And the pain she's going through is a pain that I can't help with. Only serious professional mental health work can enter into that, like your cancer, right? I can't do anything, I can't. And so sometimes pronoun hospitality is grace. And later, there's other conversations to have, but yeah, I think that we need to give that one up. Now, I'm not, a friend of mine told me recently, when I meet people, like, let's be nice. It's up here at the big idea level that I'm a jerk. Like, there are moments to have big idea conversations where you just go for it. But that's different than, than hi, I'm so, or call me so-and-so. So that's where I've landed. Aubrey, I wonder if you might comment on um, a statement on one of the yellow cards. It reads, I don't know how my friends who are in thriving same-sex relationships would possibly feel welcome here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I long for that to be the case. Um, we do have same-sex people in our church. Um, same-sex attracted people in our church who are thriving. Um, I know because I'm talking with them, but this is like a couple. So they're partnered. So when they come in, it would be obvious. So I would just ask this question. Why? Why do you get to come in here and I know your sin? Like some of you have confessed it to me. And it's bad. Why do you get to feel safe here? And, and, and if you didn't feel safe here, it's on us to figure out why certain sins don't get to kneel. We're a church that kneels every single Sunday and confesses our sins. And we're on the way. We're on the way. We're on the way. And there's a lot of disagreement of belief. So I, that, this breaks my heart. And this is the thing that I want us to overcome. And I think there's some key practices we've got to do in order to get to that place. And some of those are we need openly out LGBTQ people in leadership. Why divorce and remarriage is just as clear in scripture as the LGBTQ issue. Why do divorced people get to walk in our churches and feel safe? They didn't 50 years ago. Why do they now? What have we figured out? What have we done? Why can so many other things? There is something about this and we I agree with her, and I, I feel the burden that it's our job to overcome it and to fight and scratch and pray our way into that being the case. So. All right, Callie. Wow, another one. A repeat. Exposure therapy. Make myself do it. Okay. I had this question too. How do we act like a minority? We all get, become friends with LGBTQ people and ask them, what's it like being a minority? I'm one now, and you've been this for a while. You've got a lot of skill sets I need to learn. I'm for real. This is one of the gifts. Suddenly, we're in the same place. Do you realize that the LGBTQ community was viewed as, as disgusting and vile and dangerous for a long time? 
like the African-American community, and therefore they've learned how to live like that. So I think the way we're going to live, learn how to live like minorities is becoming friends with minorities and learning from them their survival skills and, and the way they've postured themselves and related. Um, hopefully over the course of this series, we'll learn lots of things about what it means to be a missionary minority community. Um, I think that one of the things we need to do is forget our triumphs in the past as if they give us a right to triumph in the moment. A very good thing is start reading African-American literature, the church, and um, how, how has it survived. So anyway, Mike, is there one more? This is a point where I think that might be helpful for some clarification. Uh, some people are saying, I don't, I don't get it uh, that gay or queer or other people could be included in our church. Okay. So normally when, when, okay, normally when somebody says, what do you mean a queer person could be in the church? The person asking that question assumes that queer equals sex. Um, but... So to say that a gay person, a person who says I'm a gay Christian and who's celibate, to say that they're somehow living in a state of sin means that they're either perpetually having sex or that they're protect, perpetually thinking about sex. Gay names a whole lot more than their erotic moments. Um... It names a whole set of social experiences in history. Um, now, it doesn't, to the theologians who are sitting down debating, but language evolves. The word hussy, when Shakespeare wrote his poems, meant housewife. So, for example, if I were to say to Keith, how's your hussy? <laughs> And I would insist on etymological primacy. It originally meant, Keith would be like, it really doesn't matter what it used to mean. I know what you just called my wife in public now, so let's come on. <laughs> um, the word gay is used to name a whole lot of things. So when I use the word gay, I'm, not, I'm only talking about a person who has um, typically... Uh, Okay, here's, here's one. Part of what the word gay means is not only I'm attracted to people of the same sex, it also often means I am not attracted to the opposite sex. Now, is that sin? If I have no sexual attraction to women, me, Aubrey, does that, that if, if that was me, if I was only always attracted to men, it, and also simultaneously, like one, one gay man who's a Christian, he said that when all the other boys were talking about girls and had these posters on their wall, he was like, oh, I'm supposed to do that too. So he got this poster of this really scantily clad model and he stared at it and tried his hardest to lust. He was like, this is what it means to be straight. This is what God wants from me, to have the capacity to lust. And he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. He just kept thinking, well, I, that's sort of like my sister. He said, you know what I can do? I can drive your wife on a trip across America. And you would never worry about me. And she would never worry about me. And we could have the most fabulous conversations. And that's a gift. Because all women, I relate to the way the Bible says, as my mothers and my sisters. 
And that's a gift I bring the church. Gay, gay names that. So when I use the word gay in this kind of way, I'm picking up on that kind of thing. It's different than if you think the word gay means doing a whole bunch of things. Because even within the gay community, they're using the word gay to mean a whole lot of things, not just sex. So does that answer it, Mike? Come to the microphone so the online. I, I don't know this, but I wonder if part of the question might be uh, not just being members of our church, mm. but coming into our church, coming here for worship, for example. I don't understand the, the well, first so, part of the so question. Suppose you have someone come into our church who maybe we know is, uh, is uh, like a, a, a gay couple who's married. You know, they come in and, uh, uh, you know, how can we do that, I guess, is the question. The same way right now there are people living together who come to our church. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> or what about the, non, the single people in our church that I know are sleeping around? I know it. They hope I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, think, I think we've got to put it in that category. It, okay. All right, so I'm going to introduce you to some really good books. If you, uh, oh, my current favorite. So one of the things we're learning is that the lesbian, the, the lesbian experience is entirely different than the gay male experience. And up until a few years ago, there was very little serious literature on, 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 on the gay kind of, the lesbian experience. Anyway, in, in the church, there was none hardly. Eve Tushnet, she's, these two books, they're so beautiful. They're incredible. Um, this was her first one, her memoir, Gay and Catholic, Accepting Sexuality, Finding Community, Living My Faith. Just by the way, she's celibate. So you just got to get it in your head that when somebody uses the word gay, they're not telling you anything about what they're doing. You don't know what they're telling you. They might be telling you about what they're doing, or they might just be telling you that this is how they experience life. And you've got to just give them the freedom that it's in that sense. We don't know. Um, this is her book that just came out this year, and it is amazing. Tenderness, A Gay Christian's Guide to Unlearning Rejection and Experiencing God's Extravagant Love. Eve Tushnet. Um, my, one of my favorite little books just on a theology of sex is Beth Felker Jones. Remember I told you it was little? It's big print. Um, faithful, a theology of sex. Her PhD is from Duke on uh, feminism and bodies, the body, and how this plays out in our culture. A really good, just easy to read, like anybody can read, is Sam Alberry. He's um, an Anglican priest in England who's a same-sex attracted man. Why does God care who I sleep with? Um, and then finally, Wilson, when Wilson was in seminary, he was an intern at a Presbyterian church in St. Louis. The pastor of the church is Greg Johnson. Greg Johnson is a celibate gay man, always has been attracted to men. He, has, he said there's just nothing on the radar if, if there's sexually toward women. He has a PhD in historical theology, and this book is amazing. Still time to care what we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality. Real quick. Prior to 1969 and early 70s, the, the, the four leading evangelicals, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, John Stott, and Francis Schaeffer, all four of them, and the, set the tone for the, church, the evangelical church's relationship to LGBTQ people. And they all said, don't try to change them. Do not try to pray the gay away. 
Don't try to cure. Care. Walk alongside. And then Exodus International and the ex-gay reparative therapy movement came out. And and the evangelical church shifted and began to, to say to a gay person, the goal is to get straight. And after 30 years of a failed experiment in reparative therapy, we now know that it's something like less than 1% got straight. If the goal is getting straight, um, that's like saying to somebody who struggles with lust, the goal is to never be tempted by lust. No, the goal is faithfulness. And so... um, Thankfully, that movement has failed, Exodus and the ex-gay movement. Um, This is such a good book. And by the way, there are three sections in here where he deals with labels. And it's what ultimately convinced me of the position I've used tonight. And um, our Bishop Redden, it's what convinced him to enter into this dialogue with me. And so, um, anyway, I highly recommend this book, especially if you like history, like... um, like sordid mess-up history in the church. If you get a charge out of that, like, yeah. Well, there you go. There's where we messed up. All right, I'll pray. We'll be done. I'll stick around. Keith will stick around. My wife, Janelle, will stick around if um, you have questions.